Well, I'm really glad to be with you all and uh, very grateful for the invitation. I was here two weeks ago when Kyle kicked off this series on Forgotten God. And so I've been looking forward to joining you this Sunday and being able to continue in the series. Again, my name is Cedric Lundy. Um, I've been a resident of Charlotte now for 15 years. It'll be 15 years in August. And uh, I came down here doing youth ministry. So I did youth ministry for about 13 of those 15 years and currently work with Urban Promise. And I am a native of Ann Arbor, Michigan. Go blue, anybody? There we go. There we go. I see you. You know, Bucks, Bucks, I'm just going to say this. I'm going to say it once. We're one in Christ. (sighs) Until the fall. (laughs) So uh, today we're going to be camping out in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. Now, Timothy was mentored by Paul. They were co-laborers in the gospel, and Paul likely considered Timothy to be one of his best friends. Paul writes 2 Timothy while he's in prison, and a lot of Bible scholars say this was close to the time where Paul was eventually uh, executed. And Paul writes Timothy this letter of encouragement despite the imminent death that he's going to experience at the hands of the Roman government. And Paul starts off this letter with one of his usual greetings and then proceeds to recall Timothy's pedigree, if you will, which is where we'll pick up in verse 6 of chapter 1. First Timothy chapter 1, I mean 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. When I was in the third grade, I joined the Boy Scouts of America. I was always fascinated by the sash that they get, and I just dreamed of one day having my own sash that would just be absolutely littered with these badges of my accomplishments and the skills that I had learned. And uh, I lasted about three months. You see, I'm not exactly an outdoorsy person. It's not that I don't like the outdoors. The outdoors don't like me. I have really, really bad and severe Um, allergies. Now, if if the Boy Scouts of America were about, you know, survival in the concrete jungle, I'm good. I could be a director, a leader, whatever. I mean, I I got that, that down. But that being said, one of my regrets about not sticking with the Boy Scouts is learning how to start a fire from nothing. You know, just a couple of sticks, you know, rock or something. There's a guy after the service that says he was in the Boy Scouts and he's an Eagle Scout and he can, he can make fire out of wet wood. I'm like, you know, I need one of those little starter logs or something like that to get it going, or one of those nice little chimney contraptions for getting the barbecue grill going, you know what I'm talking about? Anyway, I don't know how to, like, do that, and I wish I did. Um, That being said, I tell that story to tell this story. So one Christmas, I was hosting my family, my uh, extended family, uh, my, the Lundy side of the clan, if you will, and... um, It was Christmas Eve, and I was currently working at church, so yeah, there you go. That's my my mom and dad in the middle there, and my wife and I, my sisters, and then um, it was Jason there on the end, my brother-in-law Jason, who is an outdoors guy. Uh, he, He just loves the outdoors. He's fishing, hunting, like one Thanksgiving on Black Friday while everybody was getting ready to go fishing. He was like, hey, who wants to go crabbing? 
And ironically, it was all of the nieces and granddaughters that went crabbing. And yes, I went crabbing too. I did not go shopping. Self-control. Um, but anyway, uh, so I get home, and Jason is the one who's taken command of starting the fire in the fireplace. When I get in the house after being at all these Christmas Eve services, the house is filled with smoke. And Jason can't figure out what the problem is. And my wife is like, well, maybe the chimney is dirty and it needs a clean, but I knew exactly what to do. So I went and I got a hot mitt. I reached into the fireplace because fortunately the flame wasn't really ablaze, even though there was a lot of smoke, and I opened the flue. You see, with that flue closed, not only was the smoke not able to skip, but it wasn't uh, to escape, but it also wasn't getting enough air. See, I might not know how to start a fire from nothing, but I do know this. I know that a good fire needs air. It needs to be flamed. I know this because of an incident in particular that happened when I was in the eighth grade. I had just uh, had my, my, my first girlfriend, my first relationship, and it had ended after what I thought was a blissful five days. So, you know, I was, I was pretty devastated. I was pretty heartbroken, and I was, I was grieving. And to process my grief, I decided to write Janet a letter. See, nowadays, you know, you just send out a quick text. But no, 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 no. I, I, I sat down. I wrote a letter. I poured over it. I put my heart and my soul in that letter and, and just kind of sharing where I was coming from. And then I stopped after it was done. And I'm like, yeah, let me, let me proofread this and make sure that, you know, it's good to go before I take it to school the next day to, to give to Janet. So I read over the letter. And I hated the letter. It was awful. It was terrible, and I was just like, this, this, this letter does not need to see the light of day. I mean, it was so bad that throwing it away was not enough. It was so bad that tearing it into a hundred pieces mm -mm, wasn't going to be good enough. I needed to make sure that it was as though this letter never even existed. So I got a box of matches. And I sat down in my bedroom floor, I struck a match, and I lit that letter on fire. Now, what happened next, I think, probably makes up for the fact that as a small child, I never drew on walls. But, you gotta understand, it was a long time ago, so I can't remember exactly whether or not I laid it on the floor for some odd reason, or if in lighting it, a piece of the paper kind of burned off, but still a flame landed on the carpet, uh -huh. which it then immediately lit the carpet on fire. And so now I'm in this panic trying to put out this fire. And I don't know if I like tried to blow it out or did one of these numbers, but that only got it going even more. And so it seemed like an eternity in reality was only probably about five seconds, but then I had the presence of mind to just go ahead and stamp out the fire. But by then the smell of burning carpet had made its way to my mother's nose. Yes, it was quite, quite embarrassing, but enough about me. We're not here to talk about me lighting my carpet on fire in my bedroom. Let's talk about the Holy Spirit. And how does one, as Paul has encouraged Timothy, 
to fan the flame of the Spirit. The interesting thing about this passage is that Paul never actually says how to fan the flame. Instead, he says what the Spirit is not of and what the Spirit is of. With these two things, Paul seemingly creates a juxtaposition of this one thing that is not of the Spirit and these three things that are of the Spirit. So permit me, if you will, to share a few thoughts on what Paul is saying the Spirit is not a spirit of fear to get us started. Fear is a part of life. Not that we won't ever be fearful. However, will we not be ruled by fear? Could it be that when we are fully integrating the Spirit in our lives, despite the fact that fear is present, we're not ruled by that fear? I was so fearful that someone might read that letter that I made the very unwise decision to burn it in my bedroom. At no point did I ever stop to, I don't know, fear my parents if I happened to accidentally light the carpet on fire. Other thoughts I had on the spirit not being a spirit of fear are in the form of a few questions. Could it be that many of us struggle to live in the spirit because fear was a powerful catalyst in us coming to Jesus Christ in the first place? You see, fear can be a powerful drug, powerful enough to keep us compliant and obedient, powerful enough for many of us to religiously practice spiritual disciplines, not because I wanted to, but because deep down inside, I was afraid what will happen if I didn't or went long stretches without practicing spiritual disciplines. At some Point a few years ago, uh, this book I was reading kind of gave me this epiphany when it came to my like, religious practice of spiritual disciplines and always feeling guilty if I didn't read the Bible every day and, you know, how is it be helping me become more godly if I wasn't doing these things? And it, it just became this thing where it was like routine. And it was simply this. Over the course of history, of, of Christian history, when it comes to daily Bible reading, the Bible wasn't even accessible to the average Christian until at least the creation of the Gutenberg Press. So at least for the four, first 1,400 years, the only way the Bible was even accessible to most Christians was through the Bible or the scroll that was nailed to the wall of a church. And even then, beyond that, you had many people who weren't even literate. And in the case of someone like myself, being African-American or many women, many were not even permitted to read the Bible until about 150 years ago. And that being said, we have scores of people who despite, for whatever reason, were not able to read the Bible, had the Spirit as a central part of their lives. And so it freed me up to not be so driven by fear, but use it as a way of fanning the flame of the Spirit within me. Another question. 
Do you live as though Jesus abolished death? What I mean by that is that many of us live in a way that suggests that despite what Jesus has done, that we can bring death back. How many of you live in fear of being cast out if you don't act right? For clarity's sake, I'm not suggesting that if you are in sync with the Spirit, you'll never be fearful of anything again. I'm saying that you won't be ruled by fear, and joy will become way more accessible. A few weeks ago, Rob Bell was in town uh, on his speaking tour, an introduction to joy. And Rob can, if if you know anything about Rob, he's considered a, a pretty controversial figure. But one of the things that he said that night really resonated with me and him giving a definition of joy. And what he said about joy is this, that joy is the ability to be, to not be shackled by the mistakes of our past, to not be paralyzed by the uncertainty of our future, and yet while holding the tension of our past and our future, be totally engaged in the present moment. I really appreciate that definition of joy that he gave from the simple standpoint of, I, I, I know what it's like to think back to my past, and it feels as though I'm being shackled by it. And I've had times in my life where the uncertainty of the future was almost paralyzing. And yet to be able to be engaged in the moment without ignoring either one of those two realities, I was able to just be and be fully present and engage and experience a joy that, for as far as I'm concerned for me, is only of the Lord. So, with those things in mind, Paul continues on saying that the Spirit is of power, love, and self-control. Again, this tells us little in regards to how we fan the flame of the Spirit. And yet, I think it gives us a glimpse of what to look for when the Spirit is burning steadily in our lives. I often think about when I read this passage, the Olympic torch that they use for the lighting at the beginning of the Olympic Games, at the big ceremony they have at the beginning, and all that's done to keep that torch ablaze and and, and get it from wherever it begins to its destination. And how tragic would it be if that fire was snuffed out? I think it's easy to talk about this concept of the spirit being power and love and self-control kind of working in what Paul's already said about it's not a fear. And so what happens to power, love, and self-control if they are driven by fear? When driven by fear, power turns to shame and blame. I find it absolutely fascinating that Adam and Eve's response to eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil that God said not to eat from wasn't shame over what they had done. Instead, they were ashamed of who they are. 
I formally invited Jesus into my heart when I was six years old. But for years, I lived with shame. There was always something to be ashamed about because I wasn't perfect. And so often I heard the message of you're a sinner as I'm not perfect or I'm not, I'm not good enough. And I always felt like even if I wasn't feeling ashamed, then maybe I wasn't taking Jesus seriously, even if I couldn't pinpoint what it was that I was feeling ashamed about. However, something else that I've dwelt upon is in the beginning of the Bible, it doesn't say that at the end of the sixth day, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was perfect. No, that's not what, he, what it says. It says, behold, it was very good. If you are struggling with shame, can I encourage you that God says of your very existence, it is very good. And that due to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, you have inherited Jesus's goodness and it cannot be taken away from you. When driven by fear, Love turns to self-centeredness. And self-centeredness tends to come in two different forms. And one is arrogance, and the other is self-deprecation. Now, we tend not to think of the self-deprecating person as someone who is self-centered. But can I say from personal experience, as someone who had struggled with low self-esteem and low self-worth, as I've reflected over that time in my life, I recognize that I was just as exhausting to others as the proud and arrogant person. That my low self-esteem, my low self-worth was taxing on other people because even though it wasn't with a bunch of pride or a lot of ego, it was still all about me. And my engagement with other people was all about them needing to make me feel better about myself. By being filled with the love for God, I was able to properly start to love myself. And being able to properly love myself freed me up to love others because I wasn't constantly thinking about me anymore. If you are someone who struggles with self-centeredness, particularly of the deprecating variety, allow me to share with you a truth that absolutely freed me. If you knew how often people are thinking about you, you wouldn't worry about it. See, what I started to realize is that here I am wondering what everyone else was thinking about me. In the meanwhile, pretty much everybody else was wondering what everyone else was thinking about them. So if we're all sitting around wondering what everyone else is thinking about us, guess what no one is thinking about? Others. When driven by fear, self-control turns to legalism. The operative word in self-control is self. 
In order to have self-control, I must first know who I am. Knowledge of who you are becomes the guiding principle of your choices and actions. On the other hand, legalism is based on the law or the rules. We have plenty of examples throughout history of things that were perfectly legal that were not moral nor evoked self-control. Moreover, legalism has this tendency to make me, give me this false sense of security in my ability to obey. If I don't know the rules, or if the rules don't specify what I am to do in a particular situation, then I can become lost or find myself at a loss. On the other hand, knowing who I am in Christ allows me to become stubborn in a good way. That way I don't end up becoming like the older brother who obeyed the father and did everything that the father desired or wanted. And it was revealed that he wasn't doing it out of love for the father. He was doing it for recognition and for his reward, which was revealed when the younger brother returns home and the fattened calf is slaughtered for a celebration for him. And in the meanwhile, the older brother is still standing outside refusing to join the party. And the father is standing there saying, son, everything I have has always been yours. Am I being true to who Christ has made me to be? For me, it wasn't simply about right or wrong. It was about who I am and about who others are. Years ago, I absolutely threw my middle school students for a loop. Someone else was teaching, and it was this lesson on, like, telling the truth and, you know, always telling the truth and how you shouldn't lie. And one of the students, I can't remember if they were trying to be funny because, you know, that's what middle schoolers do asked the question, well, is there ever a situation where you should lie? And this debate and discussion ensued. But most of the room was unanimous in agreeing that you should never lie, that you should always tell the truth. And then they asked me, well, Cedric, what do you think? And I said, you should always tell the truth. That way you will know when it is necessary to tell a lie. To which they're like, wait, whoa, whoa, wait, wait. What if, wait a minute, are you telling us it's okay to lie? Like, did our youth pastor just infer that it's okay to lie? And I said to them, guys, listen, hear me out. You should always, always tell the truth so that you know when is the proper time to lie. And then I told them the story of Corey Ten Boom, who hid Jews in her house protecting them during the Holocaust, which required her to lie to the authorities, to break the law or the rules, if you will. That there was something in Corey Ten Boom, someone, that gave her a moral code that rose above just the laws and the rules of the day. And she understood, knew when was the right time to lie. I also told them about the story of my, my family, a story that my granny used to tell me about my great-grandfather, about her father, 
See, my great-grandfather, my, my granny's father, uh, was a slave. He was a slave in Tennessee. And one day in the field, uh, they had a quota that they had to meet every day, but there was another slave who was not feeling well, was really sick. So my great-grandfather decided to help him to both meet his quota and help the other guy meet his quota as well. And as my granny tells it, there was someone who was not happy about this. One of the overseers or someone was not happy about this at all. And he was so upset that he actually had my great-grandfather thrown in jail. And apparently, whatever punishment they were considering giving him was pretty steep. But overnight, there was someone that came to that jail and broke him out. There's someone who, because they knew, I like to think, knew who they were in Christ, and therefore they were also able to see who others are in Christ. They were able to see the humanity of my great-grandfather. And despite whatever the rules were, that this was not right. And so he set them free. And he said, head north and change your name and don't look back. And that's how my grandmother's name changed from Bird to Jackson. So when fear is not driving the ship, we're able to have this self-control that we know what to do, and it's guided by self and those principles instead of just what the rules say. If I were to summarize all of those things into one central idea while connecting it to this idea of the forgotten God, how the Holy Spirit is being overlooked and sidelined, it would be this. Our modern-day gospeling in America for the last 150 years is primarily stuck on salvation. It rarely moves towards incarnation. And to me, it totally makes sense why. How large of a role has fear played in your relationship with God? Do you believe that Jesus defeated death or does the fear of death, spiritual death, still linger and drive how you live and inform how you engage the divine? I'm not trying to suggest that hell isn't real, but if you want an answer to that previous question, how would your life look different if the threat of hell and eternal condemnation wasn't there. Sure, fear might get you to obey, to read the Bible every day, to pray every day, go on mission trips or service projects. But let's, let's be honest. Like, fear can yield some positive results and outcomes. However, it will totally snuff the flame of the Holy Spirit within you. That's not to say that the Holy Spirit will depart from you. One of the promises of Scripture is that God will never leave nor forsake us. And that promise is perpetually fulfilled by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The difference between salvation for salvation's sake and salvation to incarnation is about performance versus intimacy. And that's just it. Salvation isn't about escape 
or rescue so much as it is about creating a pathway for us to be incarnated or indwelled with the Holy Spirit. A life that gets stuck at salvation becomes little more than a performance trying to convince God and others that I'm saved or how godly and holy I am. However, a life that moves into incarnation is a life built on intimacy. I'm no longer just performing Jesus. I know Jesus. And thus, I'm able to embody Jesus. And the great mystery of the Holy Spirit is that the Spirit is the one who makes Jesus known to us and is the conduit for us to have intimacy with Christ. One of my favorite explanations of the ascension, of Jesus' ascension, is that the ascension is what makes Jesus available to everyone at the same time everywhere not just available to those who are actually in his physical presence. That's why Jesus says to his disciples before he leaves, I must go so that the Holy Spirit can come. I must go so that I can be available more than just those of you who are in the same physical space as me, but so that I can be available through the person of the Holy Spirit to everyone, everywhere, at the same time, now and on through until I return, establishing the new heavens and new earth. It was, it is in a way a return to the Garden of Eden. In the second creation narrative in Genesis 2, we see a God who, instead of speaking mankind into existence, gets his hands dirty. It says that God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. Now, I don't know about you. I'm a fairly affectionate person. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a hugger. But uh, I, I don't need anyone, like, right up in my face, like, right under my nose, breathing. Like, that's just a, you know, personal space bubble. I mean, that's really tight. But this picture we get is that kind of intimacy, that God has formed us with his hands, and that God has breathed, he has animated us with the breath of God. Imagine that for a moment. I mean, okay, it's a little weird, I admit. But, like, if someone gets that close to you that they're, like, right in your face and breathing right into your nostrils, like, they're so close you can actually taste their breath. And what kind of intimacy is it that God got that close that we could actually taste the breath of him in our being? Could it be? That the laying on of hands that Paul had done with Timothy, that has been modeled or reenacted by Christians for centuries, is meant to be a symbolic act, taking us back to that moment when God formed man from the earth and breathed life into him. Without getting right under their, you know, under their nose. Notice 
how often Paul, in his letters and epistles, doesn't use the fear of losing salvation to motivate people. Instead, he uses the reminder of incarnation to encourage them to be who they are in Christ. To live according to the new self, leaving the old self behind. He often does so only after gospeling to people, reminding them of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done in order for them to engage. In fact, I think it would only be appropriate to read one of those encouragements he gives in closing this morning. It just so happens that it's the preceding verses after the ones we've been looking at this morning from 2 Timothy. So if you will allow me, I'm going to go ahead and read 2 Timothy 1, 6 through 14, but I'm going to read it as a prayer, a prayer for all of us here. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and in which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, praise the Lord, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. South Park Church, by the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted in you. Lord, we thank you for the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which has secured in us a deposit of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. And that through the Holy Spirit, your promise that you will never leave, never forsake us, is fulfilled. And may that give us power and love and self-control. May we do the things that fan and stir and stoke up those attributes in us. And may we not be driven by fear. Because Lord, you, despite whatever fear you may have felt in the moment, you went to the cross on our behalf and you were raised in victory. In Jesus' name, amen.